Welcome to the Sunday Sermon Podcast of First Methodist Church in Opelika. We'd love for you to join us for worship each Sunday at 9 or 10.30 a.m. To learn more about First Methodist, visit us online at firstopelika.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at First Opelika. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love for you to join us. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 6. If you don't have uh, your Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to grab one off the hymnal shelf in front of you or to get your phone out and Google Amos chapter 6 so that you have a copy of the scripture in front of you this morning as we uh, dig in and continue to study uh, this book of Amos that we've been looking at this fall. Uh, This morning I'm going to be reading Amos 6 verses 1 through 14, Amos 6, 1 through 14, or another way to say that is all of Amos 6. And out of reverence for the Lord and for his word, I'm going to invite you to stand with me uh, as we listen now together for the word of the Lord. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath and the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house... And shall say to him, who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You rejoice in Lodabar, who says, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
We are in a Michael Jackson phase in our house right now. My eldest child particularly has an ear for music and has as long as I can remember. Thankfully, it has almost always been good music. Uh, that is part and due to his mother's influence, not mine. Uh, I can remember Asher as a toddler watching videos of Peter, Paul, and Mary on his iPad. There was the Jimmy Buffett phase. There was the Broadway musical phase. There was the Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Queen phases. And finally, into a good long stretch of the Beatles, which, as he says, really hasn't ended. But as of late, there has seemed to be another emerging musical interest on the stage of our home. A growing frequency of Michael Jackson playing in our house. Now, while there is no doubt uh, that Michael Jackson's story is strange and twisted, from his early days as a childhood performer uh, that ended up impacting his whole life and the struggle of celebrity, to the continual metamorphosis of his appearance, from his questionable behavior to his even more questionable death, the press that surrounded him frequently raised more questions and suspicion than hope. However, it's interesting, there were at least a couple of times, and you may not have known this, you may have never noticed it, that Michael Jackson played the role of a prophet. Sure enough, the prophet, Michael Jackson. And most surprisingly, his role as a prophet finds, his role as a prophet fits hand in glove, or probably hand in sequin glove, with the message of Amos. Michael Jackson, fitting with the message of Amos. We've reached a turning point in the story of Amos. We're on the home stretch. I hear some of you under your breath saying amen, but the work isn't done. Many of you have asked how many more weeks this series will go on, and if your questions are born out of weariness or uh, tiring of the prophet's message, you haven't led that on to me. But it certainly would be understandable if after all of these weeks uh, to not wonder how many more times will we have to sit and receive this message from Amos, his challenges, his critiques that have just been loaded one after the other onto us week after week. It's almost as if those of you who are wondering how much longer will this last could have been in the original audience in the 8th century B.C., Because as Amos moves to the next text in this book that we are studying this fall, it's almost as though the people were asking him the same thing. It's like he can hear a similar question, wondering just how long this will go on, and whether or not what all this stuff is that he's been saying really applies to me in the first place. As I've said for the last few weeks, as we reached chapter 5 of Amos, we entered into a a new section. I have liked to call it the nicer section, although it doesn't sound that nice when you listen to it. Scholars call this section, beginning in chapter 5, chapters 5 and 6, they call it the section of woes, which only sounds nicer when you know that the first four chapters are called the book of doom. Uplifting, eh? Next week, we'll actually begin to land the plane And we'll move into the final section, which is actually a collection of visions that Amos has and shares with the people. 
Throughout this middle section, Amos has been about one goal, and that is to hold up stumbling blocks that seem uh, to be getting in the way of the people to really engage with the message of waywardness and misalignment with God's desires. All through this section, repeatedly, he has pulled up places where they may have wanted to stop and say, I can't hear what you're saying. I can't hear this message of sinfulness and try to help them realize that they can engage with this message. Several weeks ago, as we started chapter 5, they may have held up the excuse that they didn't really know what to do. That they may have heard it, but they said, well, what do we do in response to this? And as we saw in the beginning of chapter 5, the answer was, seek good and live. It started out as seek God and live, but by the end it was about living into the fullness and wholeness of created life. And that that is how you would find life. That is how you would engage the message that the prophet had been giving He then challenged, in the text we looked at last week, the tendency to throw themselves into religious motions while ignoring the mandate for justice and righteousness. How we would just pick and choose and assume that we could do part of what God wanted, but not doing all of it. He challenged them that just playing half of the game isn't playing the game at all. And now, as we reach the end of this middle section of Amos... There is one more stumbling block or challenge that he wants to bring up to the people. And that's the challenge of, this really only applies to someone else. That's the hand that's being raised in the back of the room. That's what the people in that day may have been saying. That's what the weary, not you, are are saying about how many times do we have to listen to this. Doesn't this really all just apply to someone else? This text drives a central point that we'll unpack together here, but it's really structured in a unique way. If you look at the text I read out of Amos 6, in the very center of that text, there is a picture of destruction of the city that is unlike any other image that we've seen anywhere else in the book. Uh, This image of death and houses where they can find no life is essentially the vision of the consequence that Amos sees for the people of God that is coming to them for not taking seriously God's desires. Uh, This is the consequence that they will face because they have continued to ignore justice and righteousness. They have continued to ignore caring for the most vulnerable of the community. They have continued to live their own lives at the neglect of those around them. With this image at the center, the the rest of the text kind of unfolds like concentric circles around it from that image. But it all drives to this image that seems to orbit around it to let us know the impact and the seriousness of that which Amos is talking about. Over the course of the message here, Amos is challenging a lifestyle of self-focus. This is not a new challenge for him, but in this moment where people are saying, doesn't this really apply to someone else? He holds it up as the key thing to make sure that people are thinking about. The way he challenges this self-focus is to shine three mini-vignettes and to kind of illuminate them from different angles. In each group, he singles out a different group of people. And tries to show how their life ultimately leads to the image that all of this text revolves around. Uh, The first group of people that he focuses on are uh, people who live with a sense of ease and feel a deep sense of security in the community. 
These are people who live in a place of exclusivity and enjoy a distance from most of the world around them. The text portrays them, if you were to go and look at some of the first verses, as leaders and influencers in the community who often the people of the world around them would come to them when they were in need looking for help. But these leaders and influencers don't want to be troubled by the community, and so they find ways to keep their distance from those people around them that really have the greatest needs that could be met by them. There is a recurring theme in these first set of verses that's really a me-first mentality. Consciously or unconsciously, they see themselves as superior to those around them. They've worked to insulate themselves from the world and create a false haven that is really disconnected from what's going on. It's really a sense of arrogance that drives them to ignore the people who God has called them to focus on and give care and compassion. This sense of superiority and arrogance leads them to make grandiose assumptions about themselves. They begin to think that they are morally and nationally superior to everyone around them. And even if they may think it, God ends this first little section by showing them just because they think it does not mean that it is so. The second group that Amos shines a light on is a group that is excessively indulgent, whereas the first group may have been arrogant about their own status in the world. These people are ignorant to the needs of the world around them. These are people who live a grand socialite life that is so over-the-top and opulent that they become trapped in complete oblivion of what the world is really like around them or the sense of what God is doing or where there is need. In some of the most descriptive writing in the book, some of my favorite text of all, the lifestyle and lavishness of these people is detailed in specific ways. Beds with inlaid ivory, sprawled out on couches, eating choice meats and drinking wine from bowls, not cups bowls, all indicators of extreme indulgence, over-the-top living, sparing no expense. These people spare no expense at fulfilling their own pleasures. The highlight of the group is this revelry that is described. They gather in a special place, a location for the sheer purpose of satisfying all of their wants and whims. They even go as far as to anoint themselves with the finest oil, not letting someone else anoint them, but choosing to anoint themselves, just one more sign of overvalued self-importance. Like with worship, like we saw last week, it isn't that the actions that are shown in this second little vignette are so much the critiqued issue, although there are places in Scripture where you could go that some of the actions might be brought into question, The issue here is that this lavish, me-first life is at the expense of not even turning an eye to the world around them. The world around them is a mess. As we've seen throughout the book, the justice system is a sham, and the gap between the rich and the poor has expanded. And the whole time, they're just pouring it out and on for themselves, just seeking to find their own pleasure a little bit more. Amos makes it clear that this me-first life will catch up with them. Well, they spend their time now looking out for themselves. There's another me-first moment coming for them. They'll be the first 
to reap what they sow. They'll be the first to be carried off into exile. They'll be the first to encounter this consequence that this whole text orbits around. The final group that Amos points out is the group of people who deeply trust only in themselves. Their money may say, in God we trust, but it's a lie. They really just trust themselves. They look at the conquest and the victory that the kingdom has enjoyed in that season, and they only see themselves. They only see the fruit of their effort, and they only see their accomplishment. They don't see anyone else helping them. They don't see them living on the legacy of those who came before. They don't see the benefit they've gotten from other people's efforts, and they certainly don't see or have any desire to acknowledge the hand of God in what they are doing in any way. God calls them out on their ignoring of him and on this so-called surety in themselves. He reminds them that in less than a heartbeat that he can easily raise up a nation that will oppress them. They aren't as self-made as they want to believe. All three of those scenarios revolve around the consequence of destruction to which the lives and lifestyles ultimately will lead and the constant reminder of their abuse of justice and righteousness. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me when I look at those three groups that Amos, Amos singles out to immediately think that they're really all for someone else. I mean, that's the tendency with the whole book of Amos, right? We immediately, subconsciously, begin thinking that we don't apply to this, that those stories don't match our life, that we don't find ourselves where these people find ourselves, that we're different, that we're good Methodists, that we go to church. We're not a part of some exclusive leadership circle. We're not in some influential power group. We're not in groups that gather for over-the-top, indulgent self-pampering. Maybe the tailgate next to mine did that, but mine certainly didn't do that. And I certainly don't look at myself as prideful or self-made. Heck, I pride myself on my humility. But that default approach that we take, the immediate distancing from the issue, is part of the problem that Amos is trying to expose We're so quick to internally say, not it, that we miss who we are and what God is saying. What would you do if God had a message for you? From the first week that we've been exploring Amos, I told you that there are really only two options for how we can respond. When we hear the words of the prophet, we can ask ourselves, what does this mean? And begin to grow in curiosity, begin to look in the mirror, begin to invite the Lord's work. Or in the words of Acts chapter 2, we can look at the hoopla and say, well, these people just must be drunk and dismiss it and write it off, pretending that it doesn't apply to me at all. What would happen if you approached this text what would happen if you approached Amos? What would, you, what would happen if you approached these last few chapters with curiosity? What would happen if you said, what does this mean? What would happen if you opened yourself up to the message that God might have for you? What would happen if you said, maybe God is trying to get my attention too? 
What would happen if you approached it like Michael Jackson? One of the more recurrent albums that has played during this Michael Jackson phase in the Donald House has been the 1987 hit, Bad. It's full of that iconic 80s, uh, 80s sounding MJ music. Uh, As my kids have listened to it, it has taken me back in almost a visceral, emotive way to listening to it on cassette. If you don't know what a cassette is, ask your parents. When I was a student at Drake Middle School in Auburn, I remember it coming out, and even all those years ago, I can remember uh, one song that resonated more than others, Man in the Mirror. In that one song, Jackson, like a prophet, ponders the brokenness and the poverty of the world of the 1980s. The video that was made to accompany it shows scenes from Africa and the pandemic that was facing them. It shows homelessness on the streets of our towns in America. He describes homelessness, he describes food insecurity and poverty. And with an amazing echo to the biblical call to justice and righteousness, he confesses, I've been a victim of a selfish kind of love. It's time that I realize that there are some with no home, not a nickel to loan. Could it be, really me, pretending that they're not alone? He then sings those familiar words of the chorus. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If they want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. What if rather than a black and white rush to dismissal, we started with the man or the woman in the mirror? What if we asked God what his message for us is and what he wants to expose? The truth is, in each of the three scenarios that Amos has shined a spotlight on in this text, I can find myself easier than I want to admit. I chase my own security as my first priority. I want to surround myself with the best I can. I don't want to be troubled by things that seem like a distraction to my agenda. I feed my own luxury, maybe not to the level described in the text, but I spend on myself beyond what I should. I spend far more on myself than what I could spend on matters of justice and righteousness. And I justify it as quickly as I do it. I tend to approach much of what I do, depending on myself and my strategic thinking and my planning, far more than turning into asking God what it is that he wants or thinking that it's his job to solve the problem. I don't first go to say, what is it that God wants me to do in this place? I think, what can I do to fix the issue with which I'm dealing All of those, even at their smallest, come at the omission of caring for the world. It comes at the expense of walking next door and caring for my neighbor. It comes at the expense of taking my kids to go to the grocery store after school to buy groceries for the food bank. Or taking a day after school and going to serve at a place like Esperanza House. It comes at the expense of seeking God, his leadership, and joining in on what he's doing 
instead of just doubling down on what I think is a good or right idea. The problem with all of it is that that path isn't the path of joy and wholeness. It's not the path of good and live that he described in chapter 5. The pathway of a self-focused life is always destruction. If you don't write anything else down, write that down. The pathway of a self-focused life, big or small, is always destruction. And that is true no matter where you find yourself on it. If you're on the precipice of falling over the edge, or if you're just dabbling in it occasionally thinking that everything is okay. When we let our lives revolve around ourselves, it always leads to the omission of God's desires. Let me say that again. When we let our lives revolve around ourselves, it always leads to the omission of God's desires. It can't be both ways. When we are living the life where we're at the center, we can never do and be what God calls us to. It is so much easier, though, to just dismiss it. It's so much easier to just dismiss the whole book of Amos and go, that was nice, preacher, can we move on now? It's so much easier to just dismiss any issue or to assume that it applies to someone else or to compare yourself to others and think, at least I'm not that bad. It's so much easier to just say, but I go to church. But that's not the deal that Amos is after. That's not what God calls us to. That's not encountering the fullness of his desire. The pathway of a self-focused life is destruction. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. What would you do if you knew that God had a message for you? May I have your attention, please? Pray with me, please. I'm going to invite you just in a moment of stillness to respond to the Lord. Whatever it is that's on your heart, It may be a moment of repentance, confessing how easy you have dismissed God's call and desire. It may be sitting in stillness and silence. Come Holy Spirit, meet us in these moments, we pray.